My name is uh, Nick van Dijk. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Isacos. Uh, and I welcome you to this uh, podcast. Uh, um, we will talk about the latest, is it always the greatest? And I will discuss this, uh, this topic um, with uh, Bruce Ryder. Um, Bruce? Hi, Nick. It's fun to be with you today online. I'm Bruce Ryder, Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Sports Medicine and the Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine. And uh, I'm just enjoying this opportunity to get together with my old friend, Nick Van Dyke, and discuss uh, topics that uh, are of interest uh, to uh, certainly to editors and uh, most orthopedic surgeons, I would say. Uh, Nick came up with the idea of uh, discussing uh, this theme, the latest isn't always the greatest, uh, some ideas that have been introduced that may or may not have worked out uh, in the world of orthopedic surgery and sports medicine. Uh, certainly one that came to my mind uh, was uh, thermal capsulography, uh, which uh, first was introduced, I believe, for the shoulder. Uh, and uh, there was a flurry of interest and some short-term follow-up papers uh, that seemed to show that it was uh, successful and seemed to be a very easy way of stabilizing unstable shoulders. Uh, you didn't have to know how to tie knots or do very much except put a wand in uh, the shoulder through an arthros arthroscopic portal and then sort of paint the tissue which shrank before your very eyes. It was very dramatic. Uh, the problem was that uh, it was easy to overdo uh, and gradually case reports uh, surfaced of, uh, of cases where the capsule had disappeared through over, uh, over thermalization. And of course, a longer term showed that it tended to stretch out even when it was successful in the, in the early events. Uh, so as was not too surprising, and I think uh, uh, Nick, you may uh, agree with this, uh, sometimes when a uh, technique ends up not being that successful, we don't really see much on the long-term uh, results of it. it. It quietly goes away uh, with uh, surgeons being reluctant to 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 publish uh, their poor results. Uh, it just kind of gets around by word of mouth. And I think that happened to a certain degree in the shoulder and then in the hip where the thermal capsule was also used. And they got a lot of press. I know a lot of uh, golfers especially had it done to their hips. And uh, when a professional golfer had a thermal capsulography of the hip, it certainly got a, a lot in the newspapers. But uh, I don't think that was too successful. We really didn't see too much published on it. It just quietly stopped being done. Uh, was this your experience, Nick? Yeah, it's just like you say, nothing can ruin uh, better uh, a technique than long-term follow-up. And that is certainly uh, the case for uh, capsular uh, thermal shrinkage. Um, in fact, we, we did it also for the ankle. Uh, we published uh, our results five years ago uh, with surprisingly good results, um, which was interesting because uh, when we looked uh, at a 10 to 14 year follow-up, uh, the patients were still happy, but 90% um, had laxity. So um, uh, th th this also brings up the question, what is, um, should we treat laxity or should 
we treat instability and and that's something that is um um, you hear often, and you also read uh, when we get those submissions, that laxity and instability are uh, mistakenly um, uh, used. Um, uh, laxity is just that there is, uh, is a sign, it is an interior drawer which is positive, or it is a pivot shift uh, test which is positive, but instability is that the patient has uh, giving way um, and you have functional instability and then you test and there's no laxity and that's called functional instability and you have mechanical instability and then there is laxity um, and the patient gives way. So that's always uh, that's always um, the challenge. Um, and, and like I say, when, when we look at our result, we, our patients still were lax, but they had no instability. They were happy. Um, uh, so probably if he had, hadn't done anything or just uh, an arthroscopy, um, a sham surgery, maybe the same would have would have occurred. And and that for us as as editors is always the the challenge. Um, um, the the best research, of course, is with sham surgery. But how ethical is it? And how often we don't often get those uh, submissions, do we? Um, uh, and of course, the best, the second best is then the placebo-controlled studies. But but also that is um, 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 uh, or or placebo or um, yeah, placebo uh, is is important or uh, versus conservative treatment. Um, and for example, when when maybe uh, we turn to ACL because ACL for 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 both our journals is uh, a big portion of the of the uh, of the, the the articles the manuscript that we receive. Um, the the question is always what is because we go much more anatomic nowadays. Anatomic repair is um, is the key word, and, um, uh, and the question. My question always is what is anatomic uh, repair. Uh, Anatomic, does it mean that the complete footprint has to be uh, restored or is part of the footprint enough to call it uh, anatomic? Does it have to do with the length? Does it just the, the material that we reconstruct it with? Does it have to need to have the same properties? A lot of, a lot of techniques are called, are so-called anatomic. And when you then really look carefully then it is maybe two bundle or three bundle, but yeah, an ACL is maybe consisting of how many bundles uh, <laughs> does, it, does it have? So when is it true anatomic or not? I think most of those techniques we should call near anatomic or what, 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 what do you think? Um, um, well, I, uh, I agree, Nick, uh, anatomic is, it's, we would say in the U.S. it's like apple pie and motherhood. You know, uh, everybody agrees that anatomic is best, but not everybody agrees exactly what anatomic means. And people like to use that term anatomic because it uh, it uh, gives a certain uh, nobility uh, to their to their efforts. If you say <laughs> I'm doing an anatomic reconstruction, it says. You know, mine is the best. This is really where, where you want to be. Uh, 
but I agree. There's a lot of disagreement about what exactly anatomic is. And uh, some surgeons have found that uh, putting it exactly anatomically may not give them their best results uh, for ACL reconstruction. Uh, sometimes uh, doing a semi-anatomic uh, ACL reconstruction has been more successful in the hands of certain surgeons. So there's uh, considerable debate there. Uh, I'm interested in your, uh, your viewpoint on the uh, double bundle reconstruction. Uh, this is a technique that was introduced now years ago. It certainly felt to be more anatomic. Uh, and there was initial uh, tremendous enthusiasm all around the world. And that seems to have settled down. Certainly, there are uh, some surgeons that are still very enthusiastic about using the double bundle technique, but I think not nearly as many as there were years ago. And uh, so in many parts of the world, it's been abandoned or certainly uh, severely restricted. What's your perspective on that, Nick? Yeah, it is. Um, I, I think it sounds good when you tell your patients that uh, we're going to do a double, but double bundle reconstruction. Um, um, especially some some years ago, uh, you couldn't you couldn't just do a single bundle when your um, uh, neighbor orthopedic surgeon in the hospital next door was doing a double bundle. So, I think it is more. Um, a patient-driven, um, well, initially surgeon-driven um, to, to make a double bundle, but then when it was there, then surgeons were going to, they were telling the patient, well, we'll check if we can do a double bundle, and if it's possible, we will do it. And then in 90% of cases, they would do a single bundle, and that's when it went back from from double bundle to single bundle. Maybe it's a little bit like uh, how arthroscopy, uh, arthroscopic meniscectomy started. There has never been a, a randomized clinical trial between um, uh, arthroscopic meniscectomy and open meniscectomy. It was, it was clear that the, oh, that the, the, the arthroscopic uh, had advantages. The patients uh, liked it, the patient wanted it. And so if you as a surgeon were, wasn't doing it, with this minimal invasive technique, then um, the, the the patient would go to to a next door surgeon who was doing the the arthroscopic technique, uh, and maybe that was with the double bundle um, um, uh, in a slightly different, but still, um, you had to do a double bundle um, uh, reconstruction, and you had to master it in order to uh, to keep your uh, your patients uh, with you, and and. It was not so easy also to, um, especially with smaller patients, with, um, to, to, to really make this double bundle work. It was more complicated. Um, so I, and, and the results basically were not on the long term better than, than single bundles. So I think we, um, uh, although it sounded good and it was more anatomic and a three bundle is even more anatomic and a four bundle, if you can really <laughs> reconstruct the footprint, um, yeah, that, make, that makes in itself make sense. But if that means that uh, surgery is more complicated and, mm, and more prone to mistakes, technical mistakes, um, then you're better off with uh, uh, a good single bundle um, uh, reconstruction. 
Um, and that brings me then now then to, so a single bundle, if you can do a primary repair, um, then you have your best anatomic uh, reconstruction, correct? Because then you save your footprint uh, on the femur and you save your footprint on the tibia. So uh, a direct repair, theoretically, is the best. And of course, we started 25, 30, maybe 40 years ago, we started, a surgeon started and failed. But it seems to be that now there is a revival of those uh, primary repair um, techniques. And and in in your journal, in the American Journal of Sports Medicine, uh, not recently, um, there was um, uh, a publication um, uh, on this, the, the bear technique. What What is your point of view uh, on this? Well, that's an interesting question, Nick. I've kind of lived uh, through the evolution of primary repair because when I was just starting out in sports medicine, I worked with John Marshall in New York, who was uh, one of the few surgeons, I would say at the time, who even thought the ACL was important. And he promoted primary repair whenever possible. And uh, I learned the technique in detail from him, and I did some early in my practice. Uh, but as you know, uh, the techniques that were taught in the in the uh, 70s and 80s uh, had good short-term results, but even medium-term results tended to deteriorate. And the, the pendulum swung all the way over to uh, reconstruction in lieu of primary repair. Now, uh, there is a lot of interest, and there's some different techniques that are used. You mentioned the bear technique. Uh, which uh, Martha Murray uh, developed uh, in Boston. And there are a few others. There's the dynamic interligamentary uh, uh, device uh, from Switzerland. And uh, uh, from the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York, uh, Dr. DeFelice has uh, promoted a technique uh, very similar to John Marshall's technique of multiple sutures for tears uh, that are either at or near the femoral attachment. And all of these have been shown in studies and some of them in randomized trials uh, at two years follow-up uh, to have comparable results uh, to reconstruction and maybe with less morbidity. Um, I, Having lived through this, uh, I remain, uh, let's just say, with a healthy skepticism <laughs> uh, I, I want to see longer term results, uh, and I'm not sure that this technique is the best choice for a young, uh, athletically active individual. But uh, we we will see. You know, I'm not I'm not ruling out, but I'm having been through it once. I'm I'm skeptical that uh, it will have good medium to long term results, or at least equal to reconstruction. But certainly, uh, you know, preserving the original ligament, if possible, uh, would be great. Uh, theoretically, there is a possibility of maintaining proprioception. I'm not sure if that's been proven uh, very, very uh, convincingly, but it's a possibility. So we'll see, you know, uh, uh, what comes around <laughs> goes around. And uh, this may end up being the renaissance of uh of ACL primary repair, or we may again find that the reconstruction still is better. 
Yeah, I agree. And you know what is the problem? What is my problem always with these uh, uh, techniques is that if you want to do a primary repair, um, uh, augmented or not, or and with a scaffold or not, um, then you have to do it uh, early. So it's early repairs because yeah, that all those techniques that are published, also the bear technique, it is uh, early repair. And basically, they should come up with randomized clinical trials um, comparing it to conservative treatment because um, in the last meta-analysis, and there have been many meta-analysis before uh, also on um, uh, ACL um, reconstruction, early reconstruction versus conservative, the last meta-analysis last year uh, in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, a similar outcome of conservative treatment versus early reconstruction. And in the meta-analysis in 2021, um, uh, there was no difference between conservative treatment or early reconstruction, but higher risk of re-injury with early reconstruction. And also in earlier um, meta-analysis, the early reconstruction had worse results than conservative treatment. So uh, if now we see publications on um, uh, early uh, or repair uh, comparing to early reconstruction, that is not what you want to compare it with. You want to compare it with uh, conservative treatment. Um, I think that would be an honest repair because those early repairs are unnecessary. Basically, it is unnecessary uh, surgery. And then, yeah, you, of, co of course, you can add uh, PRP to your uh, early uh, reconstruction also, because it's not just uh, the early reconstruction, the suturing, but also um, uh, there's a scaffold. Also, there is a sort of augmentation, um, even if it's only the non-absorbable suture, it's a sort of augmentation, there's the PRP. So what is the trick? That's always the problem with, with any type of new intervention. If it's combined with, if it, if it is, consists of multiple items, then what is the trick? Um, I mean, just looking at PRP, adding the PRP, it's always PRP is added. And, and when you look at the, um, the, the, the uh, recent review, a meta-analysis from Bandari, I think that's the most recent review on PRP, um, uh, a meta-analysis of 78 trials, then PRP is only proven for tennis elbow and um, early osteoarthritis of the knee. For all other indications, it is not proven, but still it's added to so many uh, interventions. Um, uh, wh what is your take on on the uh, on the PRP and on the um, um, on the stem cells? Well, you know, uh, theoretically, these biologic enhancements have the potential to really be game changers, to use a popular term, uh, to help uh, induce healing where just simple surgical techniques are not able to do it, at least consistently. But uh, I agree, the evidence is so varied and mixed. And, uh, you know, a big part of the problem is that PRP is not just one entity. It can vary tremendously depending upon how it's collected, 
from whom it's collected, what time of day it's collected. Uh, and uh, not all the studies actually include an analysis of actually what was in that PRP and what was injected. So I think we're be just beginning to scratch the surface. Uh, the same uh, certainly goes uh, in double for MSCs. Uh, there's even less uh, convincing research with them. Uh, I agree. Uh, there are some pretty good randomized trials showing effectiveness uh, of PRP, at least in terms of reducing symptoms in uh, in osteoarthritis, or at least early osteoarthritis. Uh, yeah, exactly. It has some use there. Uh, you know, but I think this brings up something that, that you alluded to earlier, Nick. Uh, when something new is introduced and gets a lot of press and... Uh, people learn about it. People want to have it. They want to have the latest. And it becomes increasingly difficult to do randomized trials because patients don't want to be randomized to not having this great new treatment. Uh, so it, it makes, makes it logistically difficult to do randomized trials, at least to get adequate numbers. And we know if you do randomized trials and you only have small numbers of patients, uh, then the results are not that stable. Uh, so uh, this is a this is a real problem uh, for testing new techniques such as PRP or or MSCs. Yeah, and what is our role as editors uh, in this uh, discussion? The latest is always the greatest because we have. We are both uh, um, 40 years in the business. Uh, we've seen all those techniques uh, coming by. We've seen a lot of them, um, uh, which promise to be better, of course, new techniques, new um, uh, products, uh, often industry-driven, as Freddie Fu uh, has written in uh, uh, his last editorial for the K-Star Journal. Um, what is our role as editors, um, knowing that a lot of those techniques will be used uh, in patients? Um, and of course, as uh, uh, an orthopedic surgeon, you cannot wait for a meta-analysis. Yeah, you can wait for a meta-analysis, but that takes 10 years. And then maybe you miss the boat. If you would not have gone to arthroscopy in the 70s and would have kept to do open meniscectomy and would have waited for the first meta-analysis, there has never been a meta-analysis on arthroscopic meniscectomy. So then you would still have uh, done it open. So so when do you wait and when do you change over? I, I believe uh, as editors, we um, we play a role in this, um, in this discussion. And uh, um, do you agree uh, on this? Oh, completely, Nick. I mean, we have tremendous responsibility. And I try to remember that every time I review a paper and make a decision about publication, that if you accept that paper and publish it, you're putting it out there uh, and you're going to influence uh, potentially uh, many, many practitioners as far as the treatments they choose, which, of course, affects their patients. Uh, so I think, you know, I'm, I know you agree that it's important to exercise good scientific judgment in selecting papers for publication. And that doesn't mean that we never publish anything new uh, when we think we have at least uh, uh, presented a minimum amount of adequate information. 
but it certainly means uh, that uh, we're very careful about uh, having the authors put caveats in their discussion to recognize the limitations of their research, to recognize if the if the clinical results are only short term and need to be uh, backed up by longer term results and by uh, wider uh, experimentation. Uh, these are things that I think are important. Uh, all those caveats and limitations that we uh, insist that the authors put into their papers, I think really are extremely important in terms of uh, uh, reminding the readers the limitations of the research and increasing the safety of it. Yeah, well, thank you so much for uh, having this podcast. It's wonderful to catch up. Uh, uh, I remember so well that you visited uh, the, the ESCA, AOSSM uh, Traveling Fellowship. Uh, I think it was 19, um, at the end of the 80s. It was 86. Uh, it was 86, yeah. I was just uh, uh, the, at the end of my residency and uh, uh, that was the first time that, uh, that we met and uh, we kept contact and have uh, been friends since then. And it's wonderful to, uh, to have been discussing uh, with you on this, uh, um, this topic, which is so interesting for, for editors also, um, uh, because we see all those techniques. We, we have to deal with it, and we certainly want to publish uh, new research. Um, and uh, it is then our responsibility to write an editorial, uh, to invite uh, the correct reviewers and the correct handling editors to to deal with it and to put um, the new um, the new research into perspective. So thank you so much um, um, for uh, being with me uh, today on this Jesus uh, podcast. It's been my great pleasure, Nick. It's certainly an honor to be part of the podcast. Uh, I treasure our friendship over these many years and hope it will continue for another 40 or 50, uh, <laughs> as, <laughs> or that we will continue for that amount of time. And I look forward to seeing you again soon uh, at the ISACOS meeting uh, coming up very soon. That's going to be a great meeting. And I uh, hope in the future to have you as a guest on my Easy Writer podcast. So uh, have a good afternoon and, uh, or I guess evening for you, afternoon for me. And I'll see you again at the Boston Isakos meeting. See you in uh, June in, Isa, in the Isakos meeting uh, in Boston. Thank you so much, uh, Bruce. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.